Let me ask you now to open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And as you are turning there, I want to mention to you the name of Helen Stark. Helen Stark. Uh, Helen was charged and condemned along with five men in Perth, Scotland in the early 1540s. Uh, During this time, there were some in Scotland who were coming to believe the true gospel. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church was very unhappy that the Reformation was coming to Scotland and was beginning there. And the cardinal of the church, uh, along with the governor of that region, came to Perth and arrested many because of their beliefs. Among those arrested were these five men and Helen. One of these men was arrested because he interrupted a friar who was teaching that a man could not be saved without praying to the saints. Three more of these men were arrested because they had treated the image of a saint disrespectfully. The fifth man was arrested because he had insulted the name of the Pope. And Helen, who was the wife of one of these men, was arrested because she had refused to pray to the Virgin Mary. These were the accusations that were brought against this group, and the penalty for each was death. Four of these men were hanged. The fifth man was burnt alive. But for Helen... Her sentence was that she should be tied in a sack and drowned. We are told that she and her husband loved each other deeply and that she pleaded with the authorities that if they were both to die, could they not at least die together? But her pleas were refused, and in fact, she was forced to watch the execution of her husband. They had children including a little infant newly born, were told how she uh, pleaded with her neighbors to go and to care for her children, and a nursing mother was found to take care of the newborn. But in all of this, we're told that Helen's fortitude remained strong. Uh, Dr. Cook, in his history of the Scottish Reformation, says this. He says, Helen rose superior to her sufferings, And she died with courage and with comfort. This lady went to her death willingly because she believed that praying to Mary dishonored her Lord Jesus Christ. His was the only name through whom she would pray. And we are told that she went to her death with courage. My question for you is this, where do you think that kind of courage comes from? And how can we have some? How can we have that kind of courage in our own lives? Fear of man threatens us every day. Every day we are being tempted to disobey our Lord Jesus because of shame, because of embarrassment, because of fear. 
And with our culture changing as it is, increasingly we need courage. But where can we find it? We certainly remember the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz, how he went to the wizard to receive courage. But in the end of that story, we learn that he had courage deep in his own heart the whole time. When those whom the lion cared about were in danger, he, he responded. He risked his own necks for, for their sakes, and, and so for that he was given a medal, the Triple Cross. What do we do with that message? I mean, we can certainly agree that courage is a willingness to do what's right, no matter the consequence to ourselves. We can agree with that story that courage is brought about by loving something so much that we're willing to lay our lives down for it. But the message of that story was that all of us deep down have courage within ourselves. And that's not actually very helpful. Because in real life, often we find fear much stronger in us rather than bravery or courage. Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us more help than any other book or certainly more than any movie can give us. I want us to look this morning at two women who were great examples to us of courage. And so I want us to look together at Exodus 1, beginning in verse 15. Exodus 1, beginning in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want to unpack this passage this morning under three headings. Courage displayed, courage rewarded, and courage needed. Courage displayed, courage rewarded, and courage needed. So let's begin with courage displayed. And first of all, let us note that we do not have the name of a single elder of Israel at this time in history. We're not told a single one of the leaders of Israel's names, the elders who were ruling over the people of Israel. The name of Pharaoh, the name of the Pharaoh that was in power, we don't know what it was with certainty. The name of the Pharaoh in power 40 years later, when the actual events of the Exodus occur, his name is not recorded for us. But the names of these two ladies are written down for us. 
and are recorded for us. These two ladies are to be remembered throughout history for their faithfulness to God and their willingness to do what was right. We have their names, and their names were Shipra and Pua. In fact, it is very interesting that no fewer than five women are brought to our attention in the first two chapters of Exodus. And each of these five women are shown doing noble deeds. Here we have Shipra and Pua. In chapter 2, we're going to see Moses' mother, Jochebed, and his sister, Miriam, both instrumental in saving Moses' life. And we're also going to have the daughter of Pharaoh, who will adopt Moses as her son. All five of these women were involved in undermining, usurping, and rebelling against Pharaoh's wicked policy. And these ladies are put before us as heroines. They are put before us as women of courage. Now, by the way, it is interesting to note that archaeologists have uncovered a list of names from ancient Egypt that appears to be a list of Semitic slaves. And included on that list is the name Shipra. Now, whether or not the Shipra mentioned in that list is the same Shipra mentioned here in Exodus, it is yet another evidence that the account that we have here is historically reliable and that this fits with what we know about this time in Egyptian history. These two ladies were real women. And this account that we have just read really did take place. So what do we see here? Well, first, we have Pharaoh himself speaking to these two midwives. Probably they were summoned to appear before the Pharaoh. You can imagine how nervous they must have been, these Hebrew midwives, to appear before the most powerful man in the ancient world. But we saw last time that Pharaoh is absolutely intent on keeping the Israelites under his thumb. He wants them in Egypt And he wants them as slaves building his cities. And he doesn't want too many of them. This Pharaoh is on an evil mission of population control. However, at least at the beginning of, of our passage, his genocidal mission seems to be a private one. He has not yet given public orders for Israelites to be killed. Instead... He summons these two midwives and he puts this obligation upon them. They are to be the ones to begin to control the population of Israel by killing all newborn Hebrew boys. Now, we should not assume that these were the only two midwives in all of Israel. We've seen that Israel was multiplying rapidly and that many children were being born. And there are uh, hundreds upon thousands, indeed, probably upwards of two million Israelites in Egypt. Certainly, these were not the only midwives. These were likely senior midwives. These were likely the, uh, if you think of the midwives as a guild, these would have been the, the overseers and the leaders of that guild. Why did Pharaoh command that it was the boys who were to be killed and not the girls? Well, likely it was because the boys would grow up to be the leaders of Israelite society 
And it would be the boys who might grow up to become fighting men. Pharaoh might also have assumed that the girls were of less danger to him, since he could always command that they be given as wives to Egyptian men. But behind Pharaoh's order to the midwives is a darker power. Don't ever forget as we read these opening chapters of Exodus that the devil is working behind the scenes. God's promise that from Jacob's family would come the Messiah, the serpent slayer, the one who would crush the devil, is well known by Satan. And he knows that the promised one is to be a male child. And so whatever Pharaoh's intentions, he is being influenced by satanic power. Satan's purpose here is to kill any hope of the Messiah being born. Now, here is a question that you might have. Why would Pharaoh think for a moment that these Hebrew midwives would obey his command and kill these children? Why would they kill these children from from among their own people? Well, we do have to remember how powerful the Pharaoh was at this time. Uh, Because he was the most powerful person on the earth, uh, this meant that the, the midwives were being motivated both by a carrot and by a stick. The carrot in front of them was the fact that this Pharaoh could use his power to do great things for them. If they were willing to undertake this dirty work, he could make them very, very wealthy. First uh, Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so certainly Pharaoh may have been using greed as a motivation for these women to undertake this task. But then on the other side, there was the stick. Pharaoh had the authority and the power to kill these women at will. If they did not obey him, they had every reason to expect that they would be executed and replaced by others who would obey him. And so fear of Pharaoh was likely the main motivation that Pharaoh was counting on to make these women obey. But what do we find in our passage? We find that they did not obey. There was someone they feared more than Pharaoh. Faith in God had not died out completely in Israel over these last centuries in Egypt. We don't know exactly how many among the Israelites still knew the true God. We don't know how many among the Israelites were still faithful to God. But we know these two women still knew the true God. And we're told not once but twice in our passage that they feared him. Indeed, that they feared him more than Pharaoh and more than any man. We read in this passage that it was the fear of God that was the source of these women's courage. Did you hear that? The fear of God is a source of true and godly courage. What does this mean? Well, for one, it means that these midwives esteemed their God as higher than Pharaoh. They believed that their God was more powerful than Pharaoh, more important than Pharaoh, held more sway over their lives. Also, and and this is extremely important, since Pharaoh had the power to kill them, 
they must have believed that God had the power to do something worse. We know that the Egyptians believed in an afterlife. Certainly the Israelites believed in an afterlife. These ladies seemed to believe that whatever Pharaoh may do to them in this life, there was a God and an afterlife to be considered. And so because of this, they were willing to put their own lives in danger rather than to disobey their God. And so here is where we find some real help for our own lives. We said earlier that one uh, source of courage is, is love. When we value something, when we find it precious to us, we are willing to be courageous and to risk everything for what we value. We will lay down our lives for what we value. But what does the Bible mean when it speaks of fearing God except this, that we esteem Him, value Him, reverence Him above everything else? The fear of God means that we set God above everything else as the ultimate authority, as the one worthy of our ultimate allegiance and obedience. The fear of God doesn't just mean that we tremble before Him, though it does mean that. It also means that we esteem God above everything else, and our loyalty to Him and His throne must be higher than any other loyalty. And therefore, when we have to choose between obeying God and obeying man, we must always choose God because we esteem Him highest of all. We reverence Him above all. That's exactly what we find these ladies doing. They blatantly disobeyed the civil government of their land in order to keep God's higher moral law Thou shalt not murder was not a new law that God suddenly introduced at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. No, the Ten Commandments written in stone reflect the absolute morality of God written into the hearts of every person who has ever lived. These women knew that this act was wrong and that murder was wrong. And they will break the law of Pharaoh before they break the law of God. These women stand shoulder to shoulder with others in Scripture who dared to break the laws of their land rather than to disobey their God. We think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They would not bow down to that image even if it meant a fiery furnace for them. We think of Daniel and his refusal to stop praying to his God. Even a den of lions would not keep him off his knees. We think of the apostles in Acts 5. We read that when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now, Herman, we are living in a time of great transition in our culture. And increasingly, we and our children and our grandchildren are going to find ourselves under the threat of persecution for our obedience to God. Increasingly, 
you being faithful to Jesus is going to reap bad consequences, maybe even from the civil authorities. We must resolve right now. Who do we fear most? Who do we esteem highest? Where is our highest loyalty? Oh, we need to love. We need to love this nation that we live in. We need to love this nation and the freedoms that we have in it. But our loyalty to that nation must never be higher than our loyalty to our God. And our loyalty to our families. And our loyalty to the expectations of our peers. And our loyalty to our job security. And our loyalty to getting a paycheck must never be so high that we would disobey God in order to keep those things. Jesus did say, take up your cross and follow me. Romans 13 teaches us that we are to submit to the governing authorities, but that our submission to governing authorities is to be limited when any authority in our life commands us to do anything that is a a disobedient act towards God, we are not to obey the authority, we are to obey God. And here is why Israel as a nation turned away from God so many times. They didn't fear Him. They didn't esteem Him highly enough. And here is why these two ladies were able to be faithful even the most, under the most difficult of circumstances. With Pharaoh's sword to their necks, they feared God. And therefore they were able to do what was right. Do you have a holy fear of God beating in your heart? Let me tell you why this is so important. The Bible teaches that this is a key difference between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament Israel, the true Israel, the church. If you are truly one of God's people, then He has put the fear of Him into your heart and He will work through your fear of Him to keep you obedient and to keep you saved. It is through your fear of God that He will keep you safely looking to Him until the end of your life. The fear of God is how He keeps you to the end and brings you still believing to your last breath. Old Testament Israel did not fear God and they did not persevere. Christians do fear God. and The fear of God protects them and helps them persevere in the faith. Why do I say all this? Because this is what is at the dead center of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 32 about the days of the new covenant, the days that you and I now live in. Jeremiah said, God speaking through Jeremiah, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way and they shall... And I'm sorry, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. 
I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God says, I'm going to love my new covenant people. I'm going to bless my new covenant people. I'm going to protect and do good to my new covenant people. How? I'm going to put the fear of me in their hearts so that they won't turn away from me. And the result will be blessing on them and their children and their grandchildren. The fear of God is not some minor thing. It's everything. Do you fear God or not? Is He the highest in your mind's eye? Or are there other things in your life that you esteem as more valuable? better and more worth living and dying for. Do you want evidence that God loves you and that you are His? Test yourself. Do you have high thoughts of God? If you have truly high thoughts of God, you are His. He is working in your life and you have what it takes by Christ's grace to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. But if you find yourself having lower thoughts of God and putting other things higher than Him, your soul is in danger. And I warn you, you need to return to the biblical picture of how great God is. Okay. True children of God, fear Him with joyful trembling. True children of God, Love to fear God. He is like a thunderstorm. He's he's awesome and He's amazing. He wows our hearts. He is not a safe God like Aslan the lion. He is no tame lion, but He's good. He's a good God. Okay, courage displayed. Now let's talk about courage rewarded. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend as much time on these second and third points as I spent on the first. Courage rewarded. In verse 19, we find the two midwives called back to Pharaoh to give an account. And it's interesting to note that despite them doing the right thing and obeying God, God does not spare them from having to go before Pharaoh and give an account. God does not whisk them away to a place of safety because of their obedience to Him. These two women are still required to stand before the king, no doubt anticipating that their lives are about to be over. And Pharaoh says to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. What do you think? Are these two women lying to Pharaoh? That is the way this passage is often understood. Sometimes this, people use this passage as an example of a so-called noble lie, a, a lie told for, for good and right reasons. I would suggest that we should not assume that this is a lie. It, it very well might be that the Israelite women really were giving birth before the midwives arrived at the homes. 
Because certainly, if word had gotten out among the Israelites that the midwives had been commanded to take their sons at birth and to kill them, don't you think the mothers would have done everything in their power to give birth before the midwives arrived? We can also easily imagine the midwives saying to the Israelite mothers, do everything you can to have the baby before we get there. I certainly doubt the midwives who were faithful to God were racing to the homes of these Israelite women when it was time for birth. Knowing what they had been commanded to do, knowing their resolve not to do it, I can guess them stopping for coffee along the way and taking all the time in the world so that the baby would be born before they arrived. And we should not discount what the ladies said to Pharaoh. They argued that Hebrew women are or were more vigorous than the Egyptian women. And it is possible that there were cultural differences between the two kinds of peoples. If the Egyptian women were more used to a more delicate kind of lifestyle, and the Hebrews were shepherds and used to a more rugged kind of lifestyle, maybe, maybe that did make a difference. Also, we cannot leave God out of this picture. Perhaps part of God's blessings of fruitfulness on the Israelites was the blessing of strengthened mothers and quicker births. We don't know. But what's really amazing is verse 20. Pharaoh does not kill these women. Pharaoh does not even imprison these women. As far as we can tell, he accepted their explanation... And he let them go. How do we explain that? We cannot say, well, maybe this Pharaoh had a kind heart. <laughs> he had just ordered the murder of Hebrew boys, and his murderous decree is about to get worse, not better. This Pharaoh is about to become more genocidal, not less so. The explanation of the text is that God was being kind to these ladies. In God's sovereignty, He worked providentially to make sure these women were safe and He rewarded them for their faithfulness to Him. Our God curses disobedience. But our God loves to bless obedience. And in his, it is His joy to pour out His care upon those who serve Him faithfully from the heart. Uh, verse 21 speaks of a special act of God. Uh, apparently, these two midwives had been childless themselves. These two women were likely barren women, which is why they had given themselves to this work as serving as a midwife. But now God blesses these ladies with families of their own. Uh, they had cared for the children of others, and now they were being given children of their own. Mount Hermon, it might be in this life or it might wait until the next. But we can be sure that every act of courageous obedience to God will never go unmet with His blessing. He will bring His blessing upon all who faithfully obey Him, whether it be today or whether it be in the future. God loves to bless, and He will not miss the opportunity to do so. And then third, Courage needed. 
courage needed. You see, the troubles for Israel are not over. The troubles for Israel are just beginning. Pharaoh now takes his determination out of his own palace room where he gave these orders to these two women. No, now he makes an official decree to the entire kingdom. And he calls on all Egyptians to throw any newborn Hebrew boys that are found into the Nile River. The girls can live, but if you see a Hebrew infant boy, he is to be cast into the Nile. Why throw these boys into the Nile? Well, this certainly was convenient since almost all of Egyptian society centered along the Nile River. The great river served as the sewage system of Egypt, taking everything unwanted away. But more than that, casting a child into the Nile was likely seen as a sacrifice to the god of the Nile. In fact, Hapi, H-A-P-I, Hapi was the name of the god of the Nile, and the ancient Egyptians didn't call the Nile River the Nile. They called it Hapi. For them, the god Hapi and the river Hapi were, were one and, and the same in this mystical sort of way. They were, the, the river and the god were united together. And all of Egypt depended on Hapi to bring the annual floodwaters that nourished their fields. Think about your globe. Think about your map of northeastern Africa. What do you have up here? You have desert. Saharan Desert. Uh, It's one of the driest places on earth, receiving almost no rainfall at all each year. And the only reason that Egypt was able to become the great civilization that it was in the midst of the Saharan Desert is because of the Nile River. Egypt is often called the gift of the Nile. Uh, The Egyptians depended upon the river for food. They depended upon it for fertile ground. They depended upon it for fish and waterfowl, for the papyrus that they used to make their boats and their baskets, for the mud that they used to make their bricks and to build their buildings. Everything in Egyptian society depended upon the Nile. If the annual flooding of the Nile was too high, the villages flooded. If the annual flooding of the Nile was too low, there would be famine that year. And since Happy was the god of the Nile... This was the one God that the Egyptians wanted to be sure they kept happy. And like other pagan civilizations, human sacrifice was seen as one way to keep the God happy. But we need to remember something that Moses tells us later on. He teaches later in Deuteronomy that the worship of these pagan gods was in fact the worship of demons. The Bible does not simply deny that pagan gods exist. The Bible says that the worship of pagan gods is the worship of demons. Satan is at work in all of this. His great goal is to terminate the line of the Messiah and to destroy God's salvation plan. Your salvation, my salvation, we're on the line here. The line of the Messiah is in danger. And we should note that what was before a private policy of genocide is now a public policy. And all of Egypt is now involved, and all of Egypt is now complicit. 
God is not just going to bring judgment against Pharaoh. God is going to bring judgment against this entire nation for the way that they are treating his people. They are oppressing his people. They are attacking his people. The situation going on over in Israel and and Gaza has brought about the old claim. We hear it again and again. If a nation helps Israel, God will bless them. Stand with Israel and God will stand with you. I want to be absolutely clear. That is a true statement. It's true. Except that the New Testament teaches very clearly that it is those who have faith in Abraham's God who are the true children of Abraham and the real children of God. It is those who believe in Abraham's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who are the true Israel of God. The question is not how well a nation treats the modern nation of Israel. The question is how well does a nation treat the people of God, the church? If a nation wants to be blessed by God, it ought to take care of Christians, those who are children of God through Christ. Certainly here is one of the reasons that America has been blessed as it has been throughout her history. America was a nation where Christians were cared for and given great freedom and the gospel was free to go forth all over this land. And now in a day when we're seeing our rights infringed upon, we're beginning to see America lose her blessings. In the past, America gave freedom and care to the people of God and America was blessed, but now those freedoms are being taken away. And when you mess with God's children, you mess with God. This is what we're going to see being played out here in Exodus. Pharaoh wants to drown Israelite boys in the Nile River. God is going to take Egyptians and drown them in the Red Sea. God's going to later say in Exodus 4, To Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. If you do not let my firstborn son go, I will kill your firstborn son. God does not take it lightly when His children are persecuted or oppressed. And so, it's interesting how history is repeating itself. Because right alongside Iraq and North Korea and Iran and the other nations where we see God's people being persecuted, we see once again the nation of Egypt attacking the people of God. In fact, over the last five years in particular, the situation for Coptic Christians in the nation of Egypt has deteriorated quickly. Not only are the ruling authorities against these Christians, but the people of Egypt themselves are burning down their churches, attacking them in the streets, often murdering them. We see the same type of satanic spirit that we see in Exodus 1, which there was working through paganism. It's now at work in modern-day Egypt through the spirit of Islam. And as Revelation 12 teaches, Satan's goal is no longer to kill the Messiah. No, now his goal is to kill the people of the Messiah. And as in the days of Exodus in 2014, we find God's people in Egypt in mortal danger. 
I do not know what the future holds for modern Egypt. I don't know what the future holds for other parts of the world. I don't know what the future holds for our own nation. But Mount Hermon, I do know this. We're going to need our courage. We're going to need it. We, don't, we won't have it. We won't have it if we do not esteem God above all, fearing Him more than man. Boys, girls, teenagers, adults, let us resolve now by God's grace that we will trust and obey God first and foremost, no matter what the cost. And it's only if we love Him above all else that we will find the courage to do what is right. It is in fearing God and knowing God and loving God that we will find the courage to not only walk in the footsteps of these two midwives, but we will walk in the footsteps of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we follow Him. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask now that you would give us courage in the days of trial. We are not blind to what seems to be coming just over the horizon. And we know the kinds of pressure that our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing around the world. And Father, we do not belittle the kind of pressure that, that we feel in the workplace that our kids feel around others. Father, we want to stand up for what is right. We want to proclaim the gospel without fear. We want to follow the Christian conscience and the Christian word and to be obedient to you. Father, give us courage. Help us to love you so much and to cherish you so much that we would willingly lay down our lives for you as Christ laid down his life for us. And may we see that it is only through following him in the path that he took that we can follow him into heaven itself. Father, give us courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.